Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Now. Well, folks, here we are. After an arduous week of confirmation hearings, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, a woman who devoted her entire life's work to stripping marginalized people of equality under the guise of religion, appears poised for confirmation to the highest court in the land. Her appointment would officially mean a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. In last week, we explained how that could potentially impact everything from reproductive justice to LGBTQ equality. So this week, we're diving into the exact charade of Judge Barrett's religion. She calls herself a proud Catholic, which prompted many Republicans to accuse Democrats of being anti-Catholic. Newsflash to those Republicans that Joe Biden is himself a Catholic. But what do Catholic Americans actually believe when it comes to the issues facing the Supreme Court? Well, you'll soon hear. It's pretty complicated. On the one hand, Amy Coney Barrett is, quote, the Catholic Church's secret weapon, according to religion journalist and author Olga Marina Segura. We'll hear more from her in a minute. First up, though, we're welcoming back the progressive faith expert Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. He's going to talk about the principles of Christianity up for debate at the Supreme Court and how Barrett is a mockery of those very ideals. Guthrie, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. So I want to start by talking a little bit about the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who is quickly becoming the villain that gay Twitter needed to overcome this year. I'm I'm wondering, Judge Barrett made a point in her opening remarks to mention her position of faith as a positive thing that in, informs her approach to justice. And I wonder what you, as a progressive person of faith, made of that. Well, Phil, I was I've just been sickened by the entire nomination uh, from the very beginning of kind of doing it over RBG's uh, dying wish uh, that's that we wait for the election. And then this whole portrayal of Judge Amy Coney Barrett as this good Christian and uh, total erasure of all the, the harm she's going to do. And, uh, you know, all this talk about how she cares about family values. She doesn't care about my family. She doesn't think my husband and I should be allowed to be married. We live in Kentucky where, you know, the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell meant that we could get married. If she had been on the court at that time, we would not, you know, be here today married, uh, living our lives with um, that dignity and respect. And so uh, I, I'm alarmed about LGBTQ rights. I'm alarmed about reproductive rights and overturning Roe v. Wade. I'm alarmed about civil rights. Uh, she doesn't really seem to care about anyone's rights except conservative Christians. And then to see her portrayed as a good Christian uh, really disgusts me because that's not what I think following Jesus means. You know, Judge Barrett seems to imply that her faith does inform her point of view on issues, like you mentioned, gay marriage, uh, also of abortion. And I'm just wondering, 
And from your point of view, do you find that people of faith tend to overwhelmingly agree with her points of view on these issues? I find the opposite, Phil. The majority of people of faith in this country do not want to overturn Roe v. Wade, for example. 59% of Christians, including 68% of Catholics, do not want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And similar numbers, majorities of Christians and people of all faiths in this country support non-discrimination protections uh, for the LGBTQ community and support marriage equality. So these policies that get portrayed as Christian policies and from this Christian nice judge are actually rejected by Christians and Americans overall, and they're deeply unpopular, which is why if you watch any of the hearings today, they kind of are are not really, even the Republicans aren't focusing on it that much because they know how unpopular taking away marriage equality and taking away a woman's right to have control over her own body are with with all Americans and even Christians. Right. In fact, Mike Pence um, tried to dodge and evade questions about abortion during the vice presidential debate just last week. You know, he knew that it's an unpopular topic for him to be wading in on. And yet it does seem like a major agenda item, especially with the confirmation of Judge Barrett, for the Republicans to nevertheless overturn Roe v. Wade to appeal to their deeply white evangelical base. Isn't that right? It is. It's a small segment of even Christianity, this conservative white evangelical base that they're catering to and putting. uh, And it's a big issue for that small group of Americans who want to control women's bodies and and are deeply uh, disturbed that I'm allowed to be married. You know, for that group, it's, um, you know, really important to them. But then to portray that as, you know, To portray caring about equality and dignity as attacking religion, which is what Mike Pence also did during the vice presidential debate, is it's absurd to make that leap. And I love Kamala Harris's response in the debate where she goes, Joe Biden and I are both people of faith and, you know, we're not trying to knock anyone for their faith. And then she goes on to defend, you know, on the issues. And so there's a real distinction there that I think has been lost, that that we're against this small minority of Christians who want to take away reproductive choice and LGBTQ rights. And that's not an attack on religion. In fact, the majority of Christians and people of faith support that cause. And yet the Democrats are being accused by Republicans during these confirmation hearings of being, quote unquote, anti-Catholic because Judge Barrett is a proud Catholic woman. Is that a fair assessment, in your opinion, of the Democratic Party, that they are anti-Catholic? Completely unfair characterization of all the Democrats I know and the Democratic Party's leadership. The Democratic Party is, as your listeners know, just nominated a Catholic to be our nominee uh, for uh, President of the United States, Joe Biden. The most powerful Democrat in this country, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, is Catholic. And... You know, people sometimes come back like, well, those people are under the control of the far left. AOC talks about her Catholic faith all the time, and she is like the chief villain for Republicans. But AOC is like the like embodiment of everything Republicans are scared of and attack her relentlessly every day. And she's talking about her Catholic faith all the time. I think right. she's the most amazing person in you know all of American politics. Uh, and that's partly because of how open she is about her Catholic faith. So this idea sure. that Democrats are anti-Catholic, Sonia Sotomayor is Catholic. Um, 
you know, there's so many examples of Catholics that are 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 a part of the party. And so it's it's ludicrous to say uh Repub- you know, Democrats are anti-Catholic. Right, absolutely. And, and it's interesting also to see how you've been talking about the different issues that Judge Barrett will weigh in on through a religious lens. And one of those that's caught my attention is that you've been kind of taking up the mantle of health care and the Affordable Care Act as a religious issue. But Plenty of folks don't see the Affordable Care Act as a religious issue, maybe the same way that they'd see abortion or gay marriage as being potentially religiously contentious. So can you tell me why, to you, healthcare is so important as a person of faith and why more people of faith should be talking about healthcare with the same fervor we're talking about the rest of these topics? That is such a great question, Phil. As a Christian, I think about what Jesus spent most of his ministry doing, which was healing people. Jesus cared about uh, the sick, the people uh, that were cast off by society, the marginalized, the oppressed, and Jesus healed them. And Christians, uh, since uh, followers of Jesus, you know, since then have kind of taken up that cause of of healing people, of starting hospitals, of trying to uh, provide health care to people. And so health care is like a fundamental core issue for Christians and the Affordable Care Act made so much progress uh, in our times. You know, I remember staying up late. I was studying abroad in college at the time, and I, it was uh, like way into the night, and I stayed up for that final vote that got the Affordable Care Act. I was so excited because so many people then had access to health care, and that should be a cause of celebration for Christians, the number of people that... Um, we're now going to be able to see a doctor when they got sick and, and that pre-existing conditions would uh, not prevent people uh, from seeking getting health care. And mm. so now the threat of taking away health care, there's a case that's going to be heard right after the November 3rd election about um, striking down the Affordable Care Act. And we have good reason, people that have studied Judge Barrett's uh, findings have good reason to believe she will uh, be in the... Uh, you know, we'll side with the, the justices that want to strike down the Affordable Care Act. And that should be a, a, a great concern to Christians on the other side. And think about just the issue of pre-existing conditions. How many more Americans now who have been infected with COVID that, and survived, that's a pre-existing condition now. And so all yeah. these people would be at risk for overnight losing their health care. And uh, that's I, I think it's obvious to anyone that's read the Gospels as a Christian or people of all faiths that we should be concerned about about people being healthy and having access to healing. And so, you know, it, the, it begs the question, how can Amy Coney Barrett be Catholic and be betraying the ideals of Christianity in such a profound way? How does faith make room for you and Amy Coney Barrett to both be proudly proclaimed people of faith? You know, that's a a difficult question and it's hard when you, when, you know, just in my personal life, I've never met Judge Barrett, but I meet Christians and have met, you know, come across people who don't think I'm deserving dignity, that my marriage is lesser than, that I'm lesser in the eyes of God. And it's really hard, Phil, to, to look that person in the eye and go, you're doing your best to follow Jesus. You say you are. Um, you know, you go to church regularly, you're reading the same scripture, and yet you would look me in the eye and say, no, I take away your marriage. 
Um, and so just on that one particular issue, it's if it's often been very hard for me just personally to recognize yeah, that. I, I'd want to punch them right in the face. Right. I mean, you're a bigger man than I am, I guess. <laughs> I would I wouldn't say that. I uh I would say I don't think anyone, no matter what they've done, loses their God-given dignity. It's I care a lot about uh ending the death penalty, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh and mm-hmm. so no matter how many people someone has killed or what they've done, I don't think the state should put them to death. Oh, I'm not talking about killing them. I'm just a little punch here and there. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I, I've never actually punched somebody, so I think it would not work. Okay, yeah, you know what? That's fair. Me either. You know what? Maybe we weren't, we weren't meant to do the punching, but if someone, I'm Italian, there's always a way. You know what I mean? I've done a lot of Zumba and other kind of fitness stuff, but I've never done not the- Not Zumba, uh, Guthrie, you little homo. I- <laughs> I actually, one day, Phil, I was, uh, you know, at the class, you know, usually the only guy there, uh, and, and the instructor's gone. And so everyone's looking at each other, what do we do? Are we going to leave? And I said, I'll teach. And so I was briefly even a Zumba instructor. Uh, I've never done the, like, uh, the things where you kick and punch. What's that kickboxing, punch box? I don't know even what you, boxing. Yeah, I've never done those classes. (laughs) This is the gayest podcast recording I've done yet. And, and. Wow. Wasn't even intended to be, but it definitely is. So thank you for that. I'm super gay and I'm super aware that there are a lot of Christians that have a problem with me and (laughs) they're just going to go along and do what they're going to do. I feel called to kind of promote the gay Christians and and the Christians that care about reproductive health and like the Christians that are doing good stuff. And I'm not in the business of kind of calling other people fake Christians or really even wanting to argue with them all that much. Because you feel like the arguments don't really get anywhere. Well, yeah. Like, imagine someone that could look me in the eye, uh, meet my husband, a Presbyterian pastor. I mean, we love God. We love church. We love, we're trying to do our best as followers of Jesus. And they'd look me in the eye and think because of uh, our love, we're subhuman and going to hell and going to be punished in eternity by Satan. I mean, okay, I'm not really sure if I could change that person's mind or or if shaming them into doing it. I'd rather talk to people and help organize and give life to all the people, the majority of Christians in this country who embrace LGBTQ dignity. So recently you joined a host of progressive faith leaders in endorsing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the presidential ticket for the election, which is literally weeks away at this point. Can you tell me more about what led to that endorsement and why it felt so particularly momentous? Sure, and I'll just clarify that I did that in my personal capacity, not in relation to any organization. And I did it because, well, one, I'll just say I was asked. The The Biden-Harris uh, campaign has done an amazing job of reaching out to faith leaders over 1,600 faith leaders have endorsed the campaign, which is just a, an astounding number. And it's because I've talked to other people who have endorsed and they've said, well, I might have in 2016, but no one asked me. <laughs> so mm. uh, one reason I endorse is because they asked. And when they asked, it was a simple, immediate yes. Every election, you know, is is one election at a time. And Joe Biden wasn't my choice. I've been a huge fan of Elizabeth Warren for as long as I can remember. And so she was my choice in the primary. And then when the general came around, it was no hesitation. Trump is a unique threat to our democracy, to our constitutional order, 
to American Christianity, to the world, to the client. I mean, he's a threat to everything. And then Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, I think, represent people who are open to progressive change. I, I like all the work they've done to with these task forces to kind of develop policy with people who supported Bernie Sanders in the primary. And then they're open to working with moderate Republicans. I just saw this ad that Cindy McCain uh, put out uh, in in favor of uh, the Biden campaign, which I was really moved by. And uh, so I think Biden and Harris will be uh, turn a page for our country and bring people progressives, you know, center left people and moderate Republicans together. Not saying we agree on everything, but we can at least, you know, talk and be open to finding some agreements. And what else are progressive faith communities doing to help with, I don't know, get out the vote campaigns or voter awareness? I mean, I know that there's only so much churches in particular can do in this moment. So what are you kind of seeing the progressive faith circles doing to encourage what we're all hoping for is a Biden-Harris win in a couple of weeks? Sure. So there are nonpartisan ways that houses of worship can are getting involved in, in voter registration and making sure people have information about, you know, there's a lot of questions right now about absentee mail-in ballots, voting early, voting on the, the day of the election. And so there's a lot of information that houses of worship can give to their own members so that their people can vote and feel prepared to vote. And then, you know, houses of worship have been registering voters and giving voters information about the candidates. So there's a lot in a nonpartisan way that Houses of Worship can get involved in making sure we have a safe and fair election. But then there's also groups that are not Houses of Worship, but are approaching the election from a faith perspective. There are two super PACs that have been formed from an explicitly faith uh, perspective to support the Biden-Harris ticket. And then there are a range of other kind of uh, 501c4, that's the tax uh, code designation for groups that are nonprofits, but can do more political activity and are faith-based. There's one called Vote Common Good, another called Faith in Public Life Action, another called Faith 2020. So these are kind of parachurch organizations that are being more politically active, are going out um, in a more explicit way uh, on behalf of uh, the Biden-Harris campaign uh, or in support of the Biden-Harris campaign to uh, rally religious voters and persuade independent voters who I I meet people all the time who I've never heard of religious Democrats. It really blows my mind, given how many Democrats are religious. I've met people all the time that say, I never really hear Democrats talking about God. And so there are a lot of kind of independent, persuadable voters who could also become Democrats or vote Democratic, I think, if they at least knew that Democrats weren't against God by hearing a little bit more. Yeah, you know, I think kind of to sum up a lot of what we're talking about in this conversation is that, you know, this is a marketing issue, right? And I think that in wanting to appear progressive, maybe some Democrats have avoided being explicitly uh, oriented around faith because they want to be welcoming to broad swaths and diverse swaths of, of community, which, you know, I think 
is understandable. But in doing so, we've really handed religion to the far right to own and to spin a false narrative about that's actually not grounded in statistics or data or fact. And, and so I think hearing you kind of shed light on, on some of these groups, some of these important figures that show us that we are not in a minority in this country, that, that, that in fact we are the majority and that hopefully if we go and show that at the polls, um, we will be rewarded accordingly. Um, maybe it can start to change the conversation around faith, especially for the Democratic Party for good. I hope, Phil. And, you know, it's a hard marketing task because the GOP and and these conservative white evangelicals just say we are, you know, God's ambassadors to control women and ban gay marriage. Right. Which is a simple marketing task. But but kind of as progressive people of faith, our marketing task is, you know, there are lots of diverse faith traditions that inform uh, progressive values. And there are a lot of people who have no faith. And all are welcome here, all are celebrated here, and we're actually the majority. But that's a little more complicated to communicate, but we need to. Right, absolutely. Well, on this ending note, I have to ask, you seem to talk to God a lot. How are you feeling about the state of the country come November 3rd and the immediate aftermath? Are you keeping the faith? I'm keeping the faith, Phil. I'm keeping grounded in the fact that so many people have gone before us in this progressive faith work and faced uh, so many different challenges, so many different moments in our national history where we wondered about the future of our country and yet people persevered. They kept putting their faith into action for the common good. And, you know, it's just our time to do that. So um, I'm getting up every morning and doing my best. And you're doing your Zumba. (laughs) You know, Aren't you? I, I have been trying to do it in the living room. Of course It's you not have. the same. You trip over the, the tables, your dog gets in the way. It's not the same, but I have been trying. I'm, I'm better at praying and doing justice than keeping up with Zumba. I'll admit that. Well, listen, I'll say a prayer for your Zumba routine. Guthrie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When we come back, my conversation with the author Olga Maria Segura. Okay, y'all, as a former manager myself, I know how hard it can be to find people and fill those jobs. And ZipRecruiter actually has a great solution for anyone looking to fill a role. Monica Starks had the same problem I did. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said that ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her around five minutes after she posted her job because he was such a great match for the role. Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone, from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So see for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, for free, at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's ZipRecruiter.com unholy. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Unfinished Short Creek, a divided community in the desert, a prophet with total power. 
a battle over family, home, and the limits of religious freedom. Unfinished Short Creek is the latest investigative true crime podcast from Witness Docs and Critical Frequency. Short Creek, located on the Utah-Arizona border, is home to the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a breakoff from the Mormon church that practices polygamy. Since their leader, Warren Jeffs, was sentenced to life in prison in 2007, the people of Short Creek have been forced to reckon with their painful past and struggle to define their future. Join hosts Ash Sander and Sarah Venter as they move beyond the headlines and embed in the community to bring you Unfinished Short Creek, a very American story about the battle between freedom of religion and freedom from religion. Find Unfinished Short Creek in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Guthrie's point about religion in America is valid. We're censoring the wrong people when we talk about how religious people go to vote. And people like Judge Barrett are often the radical extremes of the religious, not the norm. But Olga Marina Segura, the author of Birth of a Movement, Black Lives Matter and the Catholic Church, points out that even if Judge Barrett doesn't represent the religious electorate, she is, unfortunately, the perfect conduit of the church's politics. Olga, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've been admiring you from afar. The feeling is entirely mutual, and we're just going to dive in with the hardest possible question to ask. I'm ready. Are you I'm ready? ready. Mm-hmm. Okay. In your opinion, is Judge Barrett's Catholicism an important part of understanding and actually critiquing her appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States? Oh, absolutely. I think that in order to understand who she is as a justice, in order to understand her legal career, and also how she will serve on the Supreme Court. We cannot separate that from her Catholicism. And also the criticisms that we've been seeing a lot of people have are because she is very much a product of the American Catholic Church. So I think for people who are like, her Catholicism shouldn't be questioned. She should just be questioned on her legal career. If you're publicly talking about your faith and how it impacts the way that you think, the way that you work, then we have a right to talk about how that has shaped what you do. So I think that when we think about her, whether you support her or critique her, you cannot do that without talking about the ways that Catholicism has shaped who she is from her education to her legal career. So what about the Democrats who are facing these accusations of potentially being anti-Catholic by referencing her religion in regards to her judicial appointment? Sure, sure. I think that's a really great question. So to those Democrats, I say... I think that it's fair. First of all, I do not think that the criticisms against her are anti-Catholic bigotry. There are a lot of examples of anti-Catholic bigotry that exists in this country. What's happening to Amy Coney Barrett is not an example of that. So for Democrats who are really struggling with, you know, the church has very specific teaching on how we should approach voting, on how we should approach elections, on how we should approach these justices and how should they should be questioned publicly. And I think Democrats are openly struggling with that in a very concrete way. However, I tell them, like, I think these criticisms are necessary. I think that you can't call yourself pro-life and then also vote in favor of the death penalty. You can't call yourself pro-life and a Catholic in the public sphere 
but then also be very homophobic. Like this is not, to me, <laughs> this is not what Catholicism is. This is not what the gospel is. This is not what Jesus has said. So when I see Democrats who are saying, you know, we shouldn't give her this litmus test. We shouldn't give her, it is unfair to question her in this way. No, it is not. You know why? Because if you are going to publicly talk about your faith, if you're going to publicly be homophobic, be racist, then you deserve to answer questions about how you dare, how you can dare call yourself pro-life, how you can dare call yourself Catholic, but still do very harmful, violent things or support very harmful, violent, very violent policies, you know? You know, I think what you're getting at is that there is a tension here between the ideals of Catholicism, which you understand from a philosophical perspective and from an understanding of the text, of course, and the politics of the Catholic Church. And so I imagine that's why your piece was titled, you recently wrote an essay for Bitch that called Judge Barrett the secret weapon of the Catholic Church. So I just want to read you a quote from the essay. You said, In an ideal world, Barrett's nomination could be viewed as an opportunity to integrate true Catholic values of human dignity, justice, and solidarity into our broader society. Instead, the potential appointment of Barrett confirms what many in our country and church already know. The Catholic Church is unwilling to fully and authentically confront its white supremacy. I know this is a big question and we could go on for another hour talking just about this question in particular. But can you tell me in brief about what the white supremacy problem of Catholicism looks like? Oh, absolutely. And I will try to be brief because this is one of my favorite things to rant and write about. So I think people get really caught up when they hear the term white supremacy. And in regards to the Catholic Church, I think the instinct tends to be, no, no, the church can't possibly be racist. The church can't possibly be white supremacist. But what I like to remind people is, and I mentioned this in my piece, the Catholic Church in the United States is an institution like every other institution in this country, which means this was a church, this was an institution born out of slavery. This was an institution born out of the racial capitalism that was born in this country that has continued to oppress black and brown and indigenous and other marginalized communities since this nation was born. And the church has been Shannon D. Williams is a Black Catholic historian who does a wonderful job of really contextualizing this for us. And she talks often about how the church introduced slavery into the United States even before the 1600s, right? We had bishops who owned enslaved persons. We had religious orders who, Georgetown, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits who ran Georgetown, people who sold enslaved Black men, women, and children for just to save a Catholic institution, right? We know that there was segregation in the 1950s and 60s in Catholic schools, Catholic churches. In 2020, we are seeing leaders in the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops who are calling the Black Lives Matter movement really derogatory, borderline racist, xenophobic things, you know? So I think when people say, when I talk about the white supremacy problem in the church, that's it, right? Like the church's entire history, the church's entire timeline in America has been shaped by chattel slavery, by the institution of chattel slavery. And the church has never fully grappled with that. The church has never publicly and consistently apologized, right? Because I think atonement and forgiveness is a continuous process. And the church has not done that. The church has instead chosen to rally behind women like Barrett, women who uphold this idea of what American Catholicism truly is, which is whiteness, which is white privilege. That is what the church, in on, and when I say church and institutional church, I'm talking about the Catholicism we see in mainstream, right? I think that that is still very, very white. And until we become a church that truly centers marginalized communities, we are always going to be a church that is that has internalized white supremacy. 
in a more modern context, I'm wondering if you can help me understand what other roles Catholicism plays in American politics. In other words, how has the church been a mighty political force and for what causes in particular? Right, right. I think that's a really, really great question, Philip, because you and I know exactly what what causes we're talking about. Sure do. You know, so to back up a little bit, since 2004, every presidential election has had a Catholic candidate that has run for office. We haven't had a Catholic president's Biden would be the would be the second person only in American history. So even from that regard, the Catholic Church has been very plugged in politically, has had very political politicians and candidates who run for office. The Catholic Church also has a lot of money that they allocate to very specific causes. And those causes tend to be things that are against LGBT issues, things that are against abortion, things that are against contraception. On the other hand, the church is very involved in things like immigration, right? They love immigration is the one issue where they rally behind and they do a lot of really wonderful work. But the reality is that the church and all of its resources, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has actual documents like the Faithful Citizenship faithful citizenship document that tells people how to vote and what issues to think about, right? I think a lot of the bishops this year are like, oh, you know, we cannot get involved. We can't tell people which candidates to vote for, but we'll tell them how to vote, right? And they tell us to prioritize things like being anti-abortion, being against contraception, being against same-sex marriage, right? So these are, the church has used, since its birth, has used most of its resources to really, really rally behind Things that oppress those in the LGBT community, those that are those in the black community. This is this is the reality of the American church. The church has used its resources and its political power in this way. To say nothing of the role the church played in suppressing and further marginalizing and limit limiting the religious freedom of indigenous people in America in particular. And I'm sure this podcast will eventually address that issue with a dedicated episode. Also, I wanted to point out that this is a global issue, right? That the Catholic Church all over the world is still blocking reproductive justice access for people. It's preventing same-sex couples from being able to adopt. It's refusing services to visibly queer people, whether that's homeless shelters or or what have you. It's withholding contraception from people as a method of prevention. And the Catholic Church is still getting entangled with local governments to enact pro-Catholic doctrine. You know, and so I, I think when we talk about Catholicism, we do have to talk to your point about divorcing the institution of the church from the faith. I do think they are on two different paths, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the way that you said that. I think that there needs to be this actual divorce that happens. I think right now the institutional church sees itself as a very Christ-centered institution that really embodies Jesus's call in the gospel and is really committed to social justice. But the reality is that that's not what the church's role is in the 21st century. And I like to say, I follow Jesus. I follow God. I do not follow the Catholic church because honestly, man-made institutions are going to continue to keep failing the faithful, especially in 2020. We're seeing so many bishops who are openly critical of anti-racism protests. We've seen in recent years gay teachers who are fired from Catholic institutions. Meanwhile, heterosexual couples who live together before marriage, there's nothing that is told against them. So I think that until we divorce this, until we separate whiteness from the institutional church, we are never going to be the ally and the Christian. We will never be an institution that's actually in solidarity with marginalized communities. And I think 
the church sees itself in a very weird way. That's not actually the reality of what the church actually is. To so many people who are outside of the Catholic church in my life, everyone sees the church as a very xenophobic, homophobic, racist institution. And I think until leaders start to do actual work and actually start to grapple with issues that are happening and the issues that marginalized people actually care about, the Catholic church is never going to be an ally. It's never going to be a place where people feel safe. So in your opinion, you think it's fair to have concern that Judge Barrett's allegiance to the Catholic church, as in the institution of the church, but I understand that you still identify as Catholic yourself. Is that right? Yes, yes, correct. I do. Can I just ask you why? (laughs) Philip, that's a wonderful question because I get that question a lot from my fiance. He is Protestant and he is just like, look, all of these issues, just come join me, leave the Catholic church. And honestly, that, (laughs) that is something that I have been struggling with a lot in particular this year. I think that... Mm -hmm. I have clung to my faith. I have clung to all of the beautiful elements of my Catholic education, of working in Catholic media that have really made me the writer and thinker that I am today. But on the other hand, I also see firsthand how unwilling this church seems to be when it comes to things like racial justice, LGBT issues. The church, to me, for example, their unwillingness to even opine on the Black Lives Matter movement. To me, that tells me, oh, you don't care about a black Catholic immigrant like me. You only care about your donors, right? You only care about people who look like Barrett. And I think what keeps me in the church, as I mentioned earlier, there's the institutional church, right? And I think it's just reminding myself that the things that make me Catholic are not what these white men in leadership positions in the church define as Catholicism. Catholicism to me is my immigrant mother, my immigrant father, who have been working since they arrived in New York in the 90s and have had multiple jobs, many jobs that have not been called dignified, quote unquote, in American, in American, in the American conscientiousness or whatever you want to call it. To me, people who look like me are what keep me in the church and who show me that Catholicism and what I love about this faith is not in the sacraments, is not in going to mass, it's not in these bishops, it's in people who are actually going to the margins, people who are making room for those in the LGBT community, people who are fighting on the streets in Black Lives Matter marches. Those are people who show me what it is to live my faith. And to me, that's why I stay Catholic. That was really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that there's so many people, you know, I often get called on this podcast, I get called a hater for my critiques of Catholicism, right? I I grew up, you know, a homosexual within the Catholic church and, you know, with very Catholic uh, uh, upbringing and a Catholic schooling. And so I feel you. I I felt that tension for so much of my life. I also felt a sort of rejection from God because of the Catholic church, right? And so as a kid, as an adolescent, I was not able to be – I guess, aware enough to divorce the church from God. So I thought they were all the same. I thought these men who were in these robes were the living examples of God. And so therefore, I thought that I was less than the people around me, right? And it is a hard thing to grapple with. And I ultimately walked away because I didn't have the I didn't have the wherewithal that I think you're demonstrating right now. And I, and I think that's really a powerful thing. And I, and I really respect your decision to stay and your willingness to keep fighting. I think it's a really powerful thing. On that note, I'm wondering if you have any words of advice for Catholics who are feeling similarly conflicted about like watching these confirmation hearings, 
and watching this woman masquerade as a devout Catholic, you know, when she's not actually living the values of Christianity, you know, what is there to do that's not about leaving the church or their church communities that they value so much? Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful question. And I think it's that that tension, I just want to backtrack a little, that tension that you shared and that sense of rejection that the church makes a lot of people feel is very real. And it's still very real in 2020. And I think one of the things that I like to tell people, and, and this is this is repetitive because I've said this already, it's remem- reminding yourself that the church is not these white men. Because honestly, if we were going to center our faith around these white celibate men, we would not stay in this church, right? Like that is not a realistic depiction of what the faith, of what Christianity more broadly should be, right? I think what I tell people is look for examples inside and outside of the Catholic Church, because to be perfectly honest, there are people who are showing me what it means to be Catholic who are not even in the church anymore. Like an example of that is I got to interview Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, a couple of years ago, and she was raised in the Catholic Church and no longer identifies as Catholic. But she, to me, is someone who literally embodies what Christian leadership, what Catholic leadership should be. Not Dolan, not all of these bishops who are really thin, who thinly veil their bigotry and their sexism. Look for women like Toronto Burke, like women like Shannon D. Williams, black women who are literally giving us the blueprint to be not just better Christians, just to be better human beings. So that's what I tell people. I look for the example of other amazing black Christian faithful women who are showing me what it is to actually live a Christ-like life, right? Because I fully believe that we are called to create, to affirm people who have less than us. I really believe that we are called to radically transform the world and to do it with love and to fight for liberation. But the church isn't doing that. Black women are the ones who are doing that consistently have been the the women who have saved this country time and time again and who will save this church. So to me, what I say is, Look for Black women for the blueprint. They literally have are the ones who keep me in this church and who show me what it is to be a citizen in America. At a time when this country is extremely screwed up, they help me to stay hopeful and to just know that it's not all for nothing. Very, very well said. Olga, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Philip. It was wonderful to join you and to just chat. That's all for our show today. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and write a letter to Mitch McConnell demanding that he resign, bitch. And don't forget, one of the only fighting chances we have against these absolute monsters is if we vote them out. Make sure you have a voting plan and know what's at stake on your ballot by visiting votesaveamerica.org. We're basically two weeks away, y'all. Make them count by being counted. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Elisa Gutierrez is our producer, with production support from Ruben Davis. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa. The show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geisler. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.